We're looking at the subject this morning, God hurts too. The first thing you'll notice in your bulletin outline is that sometimes we bring accusations against God. When we are hurting and there seems to be little or no relief, it is not unusual to hear God's people complain. Furthermore, the complaints that we level at God run in several veins. Firstly, the complaint comes, God doesn't know what I'm going through. I've said that. I've prayed that. You know? Do you really know what the family's going through? Solomon issues this caution, however, to his readers, and here's what he says. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in the heavens, you're on the earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3. Sometimes, brethren, our complaint against God sounds like the wicked fool who makes no attempt to guard his speech when referencing God. And we have some of that in Psalm 94. They say, says the psalmist, he's speaking of the fool, they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. You fools. When will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines the nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of men. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. You grant him relief. From days of trouble, till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people, he will never forsake his inheritance. Psalm 94, verses 7 through 14. What a wonderful psalm! But it reminds us that we can sometimes speak like a fool when addressing God. And, and the psalmist says, You know, God will never reject his people. You better keep that one in your memory bank. And don't say that God doesn't know when he is the one that created ears and eyes and knowledge and all of those things. You're predicating to God something that uh, almost borders on, on blasphemy. So whatever your circumstances, whatever your trial, be assured that God has taken note of it. Last week we learned that he is in the trial. That means he's sending the trial your way. So he, he, does he not know about it? Does he not know what you're going through? We also learned he is superior to the trial. He's above it, controlling it. 
Say, I thought Satan did bad things to us. Well, he does. But God controls Satan. We don't have two gods here, a good God and a bad God. We have one God who's control of everything that goes on in this world. When a Pharaoh arose in Egypt who knew nothing of how Joseph had saved the nation through his wisdom and intervention during the days of the great famine, he became fearful of the population explosion among the Israelites living in the province of Goshen. And so, and so, he began a policy of systematic genocide that consisted of three phases. First phase, he placed slave masters over the Israelites, Scripture says, who oppressed them with forced labor. First part of the genocide, work the people to death, literally. Make them build cities for me and granaries for me. And the Israelites were out doing that, and many of them died under the taskmasters. But we read in verse 12, Exodus 1, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, speaking of the Israelites. So phase one didn't work. So Pharaoh went to phase two. He instructed the Jewish midwives concerning the birth of Jewish children. Here was the instruction. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Now, the reason he didn't want boys to survive is because they're the warriors. They're the ones that are going to take up sword and spear. And so he's thinking, hmm, I can, I can thwart any attempt at insurrection if I can just get rid of the male population. We can handle the girls. We can handle the women and the children. So he told the midwives, these are Jewish midwives, catering to the Jewish mothers. If it's a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. But we read in the scripture, the midwives refuse to comply. There is a place, brethren, for civil disobedience. When the authorities of the land that God has placed in authority, including Pharaoh, do not abide by... God's rules with regard to morality and, and justice, it is incumbent upon the people that are under that tyranny to say, no, no, we are not going to comply with that. Well, now wait a minute, they might, uh, you might lose your head if you did something like that. Well, yes, you might, so be it. But we still do not comply. Isn't that what the three children of Israel said to Nebuchadnezzar? We don't know if God's going to deliver us or not from you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and serve your image. And so, that was their attitude of civil disobedience. And he threw them in the furnace, right? God did deliver them. But, phase two of the genocide... That didn't work either. We read in Exodus 1 verse 20, the people increased and became even more numerous. So, firstly, let's work them to death. Secondly, let's kill the boy babies. And I'm going to solicit the midwives of the nation of Israel to do that. They wouldn't do it. So, phase three. 
Pharaoh bypasses the Jewish midwives and he makes this decree to all Egyptians, not Jews now. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Well, his own daughter disobeyed him when as princess of Egypt she rescued and raised Moses as her own child. And again, they increased in number. As an adult, Moses chose identity with his own people but had to flee Egypt after rescuing a fellow Israelite by killing the Egyptian who was abusing him. So he fled Egypt. But we ask the question, where was God while all this was going on? Exodus 2 verse 23 answers, During that long period that Moses was out of Egypt, the king of Egypt died. Their Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out and their cry for help went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. There you have it. In other words, God knew. God had been watching all along, and God was concerned. So we need to be careful about the accusation God doesn't know. Second accusation, God doesn't care what I'm going through. The psalmist writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Psalm 13, verses 1 through 3. Or again in Psalm 6, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? So you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm sick. I'm so sick, I'm dying. And where are you? He goes on, I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my, my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fall, fail because of all my foes. Psalm 6, verse 2 through 7. Guy was sick. Breaking out into fever. And he's wondering, does God care? Now, these references to God's delay in coming to the aid of the psalmist is his way of saying that God has placed him on the back burner in his memory bank and doesn't much care what's happening to him. Have you ever made a similar accusation? To God? God has forgotten what I'm going through. 
He's silent. He's uninvolved. Nothing changes. This is going on far too long. I see no help coming from God. He must not care. Well, I just read some psalms to show you that you're not alone in thinking that sometimes. Even the writers of Scripture thought that and voiced it to God. Number three, the third accusation. Even God can't help me now. This sometimes follows from the former accusation. When a trial has gone on for a long time and you have prayed for relief and time and again, the evil one comes to us with a suggestion that not only does God not know what you are experiencing and does not care, even if he did know, but, you know, in the end, God cannot intervene to make things better. In the midst of a terrible drought, Jeremiah prayed this prayer. Listen to him pray. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, O Lord, and we hear, or excuse me, we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Jeremiah 14, verse 8 and 9. You know, desperation can be heard in the psalmist's cry. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your unfailing love. Psalm 44, 22 through 26. I want you to note that in all of these accusations against God, there is a digression. They go from bad to worse. One, God doesn't know. Number two, God doesn't care. Number three, God can't help. Down, down, down. And you can be sure that Satan will be right there to drive you on to bottom or despair. Now, what is behind these accusations that we bring against God? It's number two in your outline. The thought that God cannot, listen, cannot be sympathetic to our pain because he is immune from such himself. In this uh, supposition, we use the transcendence of God against him. We say something like this. God is so far above us, so distant from his creation, that to say of God that he feels our pain is ludicrous. God cannot possibly enter into our experience precisely because he is God. And as such, he's above the ills that plague mankind. 
Well, God is above us. That's his transcendence. But we draw erroneous conclusions. Let us not forget that mankind was created in the image of God. Let me read it for you. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1, verse 26. Now this is different than idolatry. In idolatry, man fashions God into his own image. Or more accurately, what we want God to be. Men do this all the time. And the end product looks very much like a man, maybe a superman, but still a man in all of his limitations because of sin. So God then becomes someone we can relate to because he is just like us. So we think. That's idolatry. But the biblical truth is that God made man, you and me, in his image and in his likeness. Listing as one of those characteristics the truth that man is the designate ruler over creation, fish, birds, livestock, and such. Man is at the top. What does it mean to be created in the image or the likeness of God? Well, let me say that it has nothing to do with how God looks. Don't think of image that way. Jesus taught God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4 verse 24. Well, a spirit has no corporal body and so he has no material image. Do you see spirits? Is that, was, is that what it means? No. So the image of God in man has nothing to do with God's looks. But with his personality, a self-awareness that distinguishes him from fish and fowl and animals over which he rules. Now the three distinguishing marks of human beings bearing the image of God are in personality. Here they are. Number one. The ability to think, and not only to think, but to reason. Think things out. God says, come now. He says, talking to his people. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Animals, including the primates, cannot reason with God or with anybody else. They cannot think and interact and draw conclusions A plus B equals AB. Now, they can be trained to do certain things that look like they're thinking things through, but they have no cognitive abilities. So we're not... Advanced monkeys. The chimp is a chimp is a chimp is a chimp. And the evolutionists are chumps to believe that the chimps become us. Number two, the ability to make decisions, to exercise a will to choose a course of action. 
That's distinct to human beings. Again, animals operate on instinct. That is to say, they have a built-in ability to sense danger, to satisfy hunger, to fear mankind, etc. And their responses to such are predictable and unalterable. That's why people study animals. And then they can say, well, I know what that animal will do in any given situation. Why? Because there's a built-in instinct from the Creator to respond in certain ways. They don't sit there and think, now, hmm, what shall I do? Well, I have this decision or I have... No, they don't. We do. And then number three, to be in the image of God means that we have the ability to feel things emotionally and to sympathize with a life's various thrills and heartaches. I had a St. Bernard one time, and he attacked a porcupine. Not a thing to do if you're a dog. He was out all night, came in the next morning, his whole muzzle was full of porcupine quills. Obviously, he was feeling a lot of pain. But we said things of him like this. Oh, look how sad he looks. See, we're attributing human emotions to that. If you ever looked at a St. Bernard's eyes, they always look sad. <laughs> Has no, <laughs> nothing to do with an emotional response that he had with a porcupine the night before. Has to do with his eyes being shaped like that bloodshot thing all the time. So we had to take him to the vet and get, you know, they had to put him to sleep and get all those quills out of his nose and so forth. But we attribute human emotions to our pets. They're sad, they're feeling blue, they're happy, they're jumping around playing with the ball. Oh, see how happy they are. It's not emotions against building instinct. My point in all this is that as you analyze you, as you analyze others, knowing that you have all three of these traits, reasoning ability, decision-making capability, and the ability to feel pain, sorrow, and heartache, and to respond accordingly, since the pattern of your personality was none other than God himself, it is ludicrous to suggest that God, because he is God, is immune from these things, particularly the last one, the ability to experience true emotion, mental stress from heartache and pain and suffering and the like. You feel these things because God feels them. You feel these things because you have been created in the likeness of God. With his personality that distinguishes mankind from all of the brute beasts of the field. Now, I believe that we're willing to concede this of Jesus. Because as we have in our text this morning, Hebrews 5 or 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. Have you ever thought of Christ actually crying? He offered up loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. We remember the hatred of the Jewish authorities. We remember 
the indifference of Governor Pilate, the flogging of Jesus, the spittle, the crown of thorns, the heavy wooden cross, the nails, the spear thrust into his side, the blood and the water, and we admit, yes, yes, Jesus understands what it is like to live life in a cursed and wicked world and to endure the mockery of the world. Kind of a mental pain, a spiritual pain. And I would say yes. God understood what it is like to lose a child and to see him tortured beyond recognition which Isaiah 53 talks about. Yet even so, even so, we think that Jesus' ability to sympathize with us in our pain and sorrow has more to do with his shared humanity with us than with his distinction as Emmanuel, God, with us. In short... This is the way we think. Jesus feels, but God cannot. Jesus can empathize, but not God. This is why I had you read the Genesis account of the context of Noah's flood this morning in your meditation reading. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of his thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart, his heart was filled with pain. Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. Grief and pain, the two-pronged pitchfork which plagues our existence, and makes life miserable and unbearable at times for us. And here it is said of God. Let me read more. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 11. God says, I am grieved that I have made Saul king. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. 1 Samuel 15 verse 11. God is grieved and Samuel is troubled. I don't see much distinction there, do you? Because of David's sin of numbering the people, God sent an angel to inflict death on the very source of strength that David had chosen over the Lord to protect him, namely his army, his men, his fighting men. But we read this. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity, and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. 2 Samuel 24, verse 16. And the plague stopped. God spoke through Moses, the prophet. We catch a glimpse of his pathos for his sinning people, and we hear regret, we hear sorrow in his words, and here's what he says. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. Swords will flash in their cities. will destroy the bars of their gates. will put an end to their plans. 
My people are determined to turn from me. And even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. And then in the middle of this lament, the tone switches radically. And here's, here's how it goes on. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebulun? These were cities in the plains that were overthrown in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Hosea 11 verses 4 through 8. And then you and I, you and I think that it is a little matter to God when we or our loved ones is determined to run from God and plunge themselves into a life of sin and that God doesn't care and that that doesn't disturb him when that happens. Isaiah reminisces and he says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. And so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 10. We too are warned in the New Covenant acknowledgments, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Now all of these scriptures... Teach us that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, along with God the Son, enter into our pain and distress. They are grieved and experience sorrow and pain when we as their people refuse God's leadership and spurn His commands. God hurts over the same issues that bring hurt into your life. The physical suffering of persecution, the indifference of those we love and trust, the betrayal of loyalty, the ending of friendship and devotion, the failure to remember and appreciate the kindnesses that we have done for the very ones who now turn away, the rejection of his overtures of love and compassion, preferring instead to be hard-hearted and stubborn. God feels all of that as we do that to him. God even grieves and laments over things that we as fellow sinners have no authority to enact. The judgment of the wicked, as in the days of Noah, which resulted in the worldwide flood. That grieved God. Now they were wicked people and we might say, well, they deserve what they get, yeah. Yeah. God grieved over that. 
The chastening of his own people for their rebellion. Those times when God actually became Israel's enemy and fought against them. These all bring grief and sorrow to God. You say, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Then why would God do these things if in the very doing he is distressed and grieved? It is because God is committed to justice and he is committed to righteousness. Even if it means temporal judgment for sin. His impeccable character will not permit him to look the other way or gloss over what he knows will damn you to hell. That's why he's grieved. He sees the path you're on even if you don't see it. There is salvation in but one way. He told his prophet Ezekiel, Say to them, say to the people, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Can you not hear his pain? In that statement, can you not hear his reluctance to pass the death sentence? And so he points them to the cure. What's the cure? Repentance is the cure. But few there are who who will walk down that humbling and self-effacing path. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. They won't do it. That brings us to the third point in the outline, that sin and rebellion is the cause. Listen to this. Sin and rebellion is the cause of all pain and suffering in us and in God. It's the cause of all our pain and suffering. Let's be careful here to put our finger on the real cause of all our pain and suffering. It has nothing to do with God failing us, but everything to do with we who have failed God. God placed Adam and Eve in a pristine, perfect, sinless environment. Eden was their home. Their every need was provided for them. Sin was not in the picture. There were no thorns. There were no weeds in the garden. There were no worms in the fruit of the fruit trees. There were no aches in their bodies, no deterioration or atrophy in their mental or physical prowess. They were as sharp as a tack all the time. They were young, they were vibrant, they were strong. God's grace and provision smothered them with love. And then Satan successfully tempted them to believe his lie and to deny God's truth and everything, I mean everything, Irreversibly changed for the worst. They could not undo their sin of rebellion. Their traitorous betrayal of God's commandment. They died spiritually. The race died in them. God cursed Adam and his headship over creation. He cursed Eve and brought pain into the birthing process. 
And so physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, pain, spiritual pain, indeed all pain and suffering, you cannot think of one sorrow, one malady, one loss, one reversal of good fortune, one heartache that does not have its roots in sin. And that, that root has grown into an all-encompassing weed tree. I call them weed trees. You know what I mean by weed tree? Sometimes they come up in the backyard and it isn't long before that they're that big around and 20 feet tall. And what are they? They're nothing. They're just a noxious, no good for nothing tree. Taking up soil. And the weed tree chokes the God life out of every human being and leaves us morally bankrupt and hostile toward each other and towards God. Sin is a killer. It killed all. All are dead in trespasses and sin. It cannot be mollified. It is responsible for all of your pain and mine. And it is responsible for God's pain too. The grief that he bears. And only Jesus' blood and righteousness can right the wrong and bring forgiveness and healing to your hurting soul. That's why you need Christ. That is God saying, I will fix the problem. I will fix the mess that you made. Only God can fix the mess. So I hope you have a different view now of what the Bible says about God and how he is susceptible to pain and grief and distress that's caused by us sinners in our rebellion towards him and his leadership. That brings us to the last point. How may we ease God's pain and ours? Firstly, end the denial. End the denial. God said to his people, listen to this, Surely, surely, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and they speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their deeds are evil deeds. Their feet rush into sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned themselves into crooked roads. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness... But we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. And at midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but we find none. For deliverance, but it's far away. 
For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and following. God is saying, don't blame me for your troubles. Blame yourself. There's nothing wrong with my strong arm, but I'm not going to rescue you so you can continue on sinning against me and your fellow man. And the sooner we stop denying our role in our problems, the sooner we will experience the remedial and healing intervention of God. He wants us to repent of our wicked conduct. And he listed that. We list lies, deceit, injustice, all of those various things. Come away from those things and you'll find God will come near to you. And he'll bring healing. So that's the first thing. You've got to stop the denial. It's not me. It's God. No, it's not God, it's you. Secondly, pray believing and pray truthfully. You know all those psalms we read this morning today where the author was saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? They were prayers that were put to music and became psalms. Psalm 44 suggested that God was asleep. Oh Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. We read it. Uh, the psalmist was saying, God, you're asleep on the job. You're asleep on the job. Would you say that to God? Would you pray that to God? Let me suggest something about prayer and truthfulness. God is not impressed with flowery speech and carefully crafted phraseology. What impresses God is sincerity, honesty, faith, with all of that with respect. We don't chew God out, so to speak. We don't rake him over the carpet. But we may state our complaints. How long? Where are you? Are you asleep? When you're upset, don't you talk that way to one another? Husband and wives? Parent-child? Don't we believe honesty is the best policy? Didn't Jesus say it's the truth that sets us free? God's not asking you to snow him or try to snow him in your prayer life. He wants you to be believing and truthful. James put it this way, If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Ask and he'll give it to you. And it will be given to him. But, here's, here's James' little caveat. But when he asks, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He's double-minded man, and he's unstable in all he does. James 1, verse 5 through 8. And what James is saying, look, when you pray to God, you ask in truth, and you ask believing that he can really rectify and help the situation. You don't come to God and say, yeah, I hope you can do that. I don't know if you can. Well, I, I'm, I'm wishing that you can, but I'm not sure. And, you know, that double-minded, back-and-forth arguing that we do sometimes with one another. Don't do that with God. He expects you to come believing that He is the answer. And then lastly, you need to trust God's timing. We were talking about that in the adult class this morning. God is never in a hurry. He's never in panic mode with regard to how he does things. Solomon writes, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 17. Lord help. And I need your help right now. Tomorrow won't do. It's got to be today. Da -da 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 -da. Not only that Lord. But I want you to do this, 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 this. And we begin to dictate to God. How he's going to help us. And Solomon's saying you know. There's a time. For everything under the sun. Luke tells us that because of attempts on his life, newly converted Saul was shipped off to Tarsus by the brethren. And then he writes this, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of of the Lord. Acts 9 verse 31. God just took Saul who seemed to be the bone of contention with the Jews and moved him over to Tarsus, got him out of Jerusalem. Not that he was doing anything wrong but because he was who he was. A Jew converted to the Jesus way and they didn't like that. And when that took place then the church began to enjoy, it says, a time of peace. It was strengthened, encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. There's a time for everything. We pray for our small church that it might increase in numbers, that it might be encouraged in the Holy Spirit. But trust God's timing. Be patient. God has not forgotten you. Say, well, I've been putting up with this for two years, three years, whatever. That's just a day. Just a couple days in God's eyes. God has been enduring for centuries. Long suffering, the Bible calls it. Putting off the day of his judgment so that you have time to come and repent. And come to Christ and know him as Savior. What if he did come today? We sing that song. What if it were today? Well, if it were today, some of you here, you wouldn't make it to glory.
because you don't know Christ. May this be the day that you come. May the timing be right for you this day. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and goodness. We thank you that we are not in control of any of these events. You are in control. And help us, Lord, to see that you do have a heart for your creation, for your people in particular, but for all of your creation. You are grieved when we sin. You're not happy to see us rebel so that you can spank us really good. You take no delight in the death of the wicked. You prefer us to repent, to turn away and live, and live. Come to life and enjoy full life in Christ. Help us this day to do that. Draw us by your grace. Forgive us our insolence. Forgive us our stubbornness. Whatever it is that's keeping us from you. Our unbelief, Lord, grant us faith. Our love of sin, grant us repentance. We praise you for what you do. It is a delight to know from the scriptures that the God of the universe is a good God. Good intrinsically. Oh, would we be in trouble if you were an evil God. Even your judgments are good because they make us repent. Your spankings are good because they make us turn back to you. That's where we should be in the first place. So, O oh Lord, we're thankful for who and what you are. Bless these words today to our hearts. Encourage us in our faith. Wow, what a great God we have. One who can empathize with all of our sin and weaknesses and yet was himself and is himself without sin. Amen.